0: This book grew out of a moment. My mother is standing in her kitchen holding a small red-brown marbled hardback journal. She tells me that it belonged to her mother, Elizabeth, who died when my mother was just nine years old. She's not sure what to do with it and thinks I might like it. But there's a spark in her eyes. She knows it's no ordinary book. She's giving it to me so that I can find things, dig down into my family's past and show her the treasures I uncover. She's entrusting me with her mother's story. She's handing me a thread and saying... Hold this, follow it, don't let go, you're going to need it. The story of the grandmother I never knew has been passed down through two generations in the sepia photographs, scrawled letters and dramatic anecdotes that constitute a family history and now in this book of lists. I have nothing else of Elizabeth so it feels immediately precious. Intrigued, I open it and find pages and pages of lists written between 1939 and 1957, the year she died. From an inventory of household linen to a record of the number of eggs her chickens laid over the course of a year, Elizabeth itemised her days, page after page, and it feels as though I'm being offered a glimpse of her life in fragments and scraps. As I turn the fragile, age-worn pages, I begin to wonder what drove someone to make and keep all these lists. A few months after my mother gives me the book of lists, a dress arrives at her house, sent by a distant cousin, a dress that belonged to Elizabeth. It was handmade by the House of Dior in pale golden silk and starred with tiny hand-sewn glass beads and pearls, the fabric so diaphanous I'm afraid it will disintegrate in my hands. I try it on and it fits perfectly as if it had been made for me. Something in that moment of climbing into my grandmother's dress makes me feel as if I'm stepping into Elizabeth's skin. Enveloped in the fabric that she once wore, it feels as if some part of her is woven into the threads and for the first time I have a sense of her as a person who existed beyond the few stories I grew up with. It felt completely comfortable and otherly all at once. Until now, Elizabeth's absence has always been a presence. Her story spun from the feathered filaments of memories. My mother spoke often of her parents, but there was always a sense of slippage. Her memories are hazy, and she didn't really know them, if any of us truly know our parents. But I realised that Elizabeth's book of lists might allow me to discover who Elizabeth really was, and to draw out the stories hidden between her beautifully scripted lines. Elizabeth was born in England in 1915, but spent much of her life overseas. Her father was a diplomat, and her short life was characterised by movement and displacement. The Book of Lists mirrors this constant shifting, with numerous lists for various diplomatic postings and items to be put into storage. I want to trace its movements, to follow its journey from London on the brink of war, to post-Civil War Spain, across the plains of the Middle East, to the mangrove swamps of Brazil and the pomp of Paris, and to the dusty comfort of a stately home. The Book of Lists prompts hours of poring over photograph albums, diaries and letters. It leads me to scour country lanes in search of houses Elizabeth once lived in, to read the sad pages of an inquest transcript she never saw, and to dig deep into my family's past. Immersed in Elizabeth's world, my own habit of list-making intensifies, and I begin to understand the human impulse to seek order and clarity through the act of writing things down in neat columns or hastily scribbled lines. Every time I open Elizabeth's book of lists, I feel a childlike sense of delight and anticipation. It has a black cloth spine, a marbled claret and black cover, and inside the pages are blue lined with a red double line marking the heading space. Elizabeth writes mostly in black ink, in a small, unfussy hand, like my mother's. The B's and Y's in particular feel very familiar, the hand movement and pen strokes passed down to the next generation. I imagine Elizabeth setting out to buy this journal, in which she would catalogue a new part of her life, turning over different books on the shelf until she found one the right size, the right weight. These things bring the promise of clarity, preparedness, all the possibilities of the clean page and the emotions we can pour into it. For Elizabeth with her list book, there was a hope that the coming pages would help her navigate a new phase of her life as an adult and as wife to the man she had met first in China. So although the book of lists begins its journey in London, it is in Peking, as Beijing was known then, that my search must start. Elizabeth moved to China in 1936, aged 21, when her father took up the post of British ambassador there. China in the 1930s was a place of conflict and contrast, afflicted by floods, famine, political instability, and the omnipresent threat of invasion by Japan, and Britain was trying to maintain its grip on the Far East. It was an important posting for Elizabeth's father, and also the furthest posting to which her family had been sent. When they first arrived in China, Elizabeth and her family experienced few of the problems that flurry outside their small diplomatic sphere. While they wait for a new house to be built in Nanking, they live in the embassy compound in Peking, a city with a dark underbelly, swollen with refugees from the poverty-stricken countryside and Manchuria. In Elizabeth's time, it is a kind of matrioska city, walls within walls, cities within cities, a place of hidden courtyards and forbidden palaces. Camels stride through the city gates at dawn, laden with goods, passing elaborate facades and statuary, marble boats, carved temples and terraced shrines. The streets bustle with peddlers, child barbers shave heads into bowls of water, women sit on the side of the road smoking long pipes and sewing beside street cafes where people gather to talk and eat. Men take pet birds perched on sticks for walks, fortune tellers provide a constant stream of guidance and direction, a one man street theatre puts on a puppet show for a keen crowd, children reshape discarded stubs into new cigarettes to sell and everywhere there is a stench and so much dust that men constantly sprinkle water onto the street using long-handled scoops to try to keep it out of the air. An area known as the Badlands is home to poor European expats, opium dens, drug addicts, prostitutes and exiles. Not far away, the foreign negation quarter houses visiting diplomats like Elizabeth's father and his family. It is 2nd of February 1937. A biting wind blows down from the Siberian plains across the wooded purple mountains outside Nanking, but the afternoon is bright and clear. Elizabeth is out riding with her friends. Her horse is skittish, but she is happy, heading for home and enjoying the sight of water buffalo grazing in the paddy fields through the hoof-whipped dust. Suddenly, a shot cracks the air. She hears a whizzing sound and feels a forceful blow to her forehead. Terrified, she reaches her hand to her head, fearing it has been half blown off. She finds it intact but pouring with blood. I've been hit, a bullet, she cries, hurling herself to the ground. The bullet entered above her left eye and skimmed across her forehead. Now, cool and still, it is lodged in the thin bone. One of her party, a young diplomat named Jerry Young, leaps from his horse and searches frantically for something he can use to remove the bullet. He finds a long, thin door key in his pocket and uses it to prod gently at the bleeding wound, eventually managing to gouge the bullet from her head. It is still unclear whether her party was a specific target or whether Elizabeth was caught in the crossfire between warring bandits. There are even suggestions that the gun was a rook rifle fired by a Chinese sportsman. But what really captures people's attention is the ingenious rescue by the young diplomat Jerry and news of the shooting spreads. The British press get hold of the story and, as Elizabeth recounts, they report the incident with a charming and wholly inaccurate flourish. Jerry, so the story goes, spurred forward in knightly fashion and swinging the chancery keys on their chase like a mace, fell the assailant before he could reload his blunderbuss. This is how I've always seen Jerry, the quick-thinking, dashing hero struck with sudden love for the injured woman swooning in his arms. The shooting has become woven into our family folklore, an impossibly romantic rescue that sowed the seeds of future love. A photograph of Jerry and Elizabeth leaving the church, freshly wed, stood for years on my mother's window sill, framed by shadows and star-spattered skies. As a child, I scoured the picture for clues as to who these people really were, for something that could connect them to me. I would hold it, stroke the cold, dusty glass, and ask my mother about her parents, enchanted by them and unable to grasp the horror of her loss. By the time she was 13, both my mother's parents had died, and this is only now, as I get to know more about Elizabeth and Jerry that I begin to understand how starkly her life would have been divided into a before and an after. And then comes the phone call. My mother's voice has become strange, crackly and brittle. She had a cold some weeks ago but the scratchiness in her throat remained and the doctor has finally sent her for a chest x-ray. She tells me the results. She has suspected stage 4 non-small cell adenocarcinoma, lung cancer. I hold the phone in one hand and look at the floorboards as the ground seems to be sucked away from me. Time collapses and I'm back to the day 16 years ago when, age 48, just old, four years older than I am now, she was diagnosed with bowel and ovarian cancer. That time is hazy for me. I remember her seeming to shrink, becoming brittle and bird-like, her hair thinning and white, the rest of the family struggling to cope but not knowing how to reach each other, blundering around without our central compass. I remember visiting her in hospital, finding her under a yellow waffle blanket at the end of the ward, holding her hand because no words would come. After months of operations and savage chemotherapy, she was given the all-clear, but it seems that cancer was merely lingering in the darkness, waiting for its moment to blossom. Now I'm there again, waiting for more news and a way to make sense of what is happening. She sent for more tests. One afternoon, soon after that phone call, my mobile beeps. A text. News not too good. A tumour is growing on her left lung, twining itself somewhere between her heart and vocal cords, and this time we are told she will not survive. The cancer is inoperable, incurable. The oncologist tells her she has months to live. We scrabble for information, anything on which to peg our horror and grief as she begins treatment. The chemotherapy makes her feel worse than the illness, and she stops having it after being told it will only prolong her life by six months. It seems especially savage and poignant that just as I'm beginning to piece Elizabeth's life back together, my mother is told hers is coming to an end.